my name is Dean. If today is day number one uh, for you, uh, we're grateful that you would be a guest with us uh, this morning. The first thing that we would invite you to do is take out your smartphone if you would. Um, you can open up your camera app, point it at one of the QR codes on one of the chairs in front of you, or you can type in lpguest.com into your web browser. A couple reasons to do that. One is that there are interactive message notes there, not just my notes, but you can type your own notes in there as we go through the message this morning and have a record maybe of something God says to you. Secondly, there's a guest information card that's there. Take you, I don't know, 45 seconds or so to fill that out. There are five different ministries that are listed on the bottom. We're already partnered with all five, but you choose one, the one that's kind of nearest to you. We'll make an extra $5 donation to that particular ministry uh, just because you let us know that you were here with us today and you can make a difference uh, in, somebody else's, uh, in somebody else's life. So we are in the middle of a series, actually week number four of a series called Not Without Hope. And the way that we have defined um, hope is this reality that hope is the, spirit, the spiritual ability to imagine a better future, right? Hope is the spiritual ability to imagine a better future. So how does hope work? Well, kind of like the new song there that we just uh, sung, I don't know what you're doing, right? We don't always know what God is doing, but I know what you've done. So here's how hope Works When we're in the present and we don't always understand the realities of everything that's going on in our lives, we look backwards at what God has done. And as we look into our past, we attach meaning to the things in our past. We stack up experiences with God that gives us the confidence, right? The other line that we sang in the song is, I don't know the future, but the future's in your hands. It gives us the confidence to imagine a better future um, as we look forward. So what we said throughout the series is that hope, um, it's essential, it's, it's not optional um, for life. As we move forward, um, we need hope, and we're not the first people to recognize that. You go back throughout history, all the way back to the 14th century, if you want to. Uh, Dante wrote the Inferno, right? You've got the seven circles, the, the realities of people who choose life without God, people who choose isolation and wrath, and so... Um, I'll show you an artist's rendering uh, of that. The reason I, I show you this is because there's a, a well-known uh, quote from, from the book that Dante says is written over the doorway to the inferno. La siate ogni esperanza voi incitrate. It's a little hillbilly Italian for you right there, right? There you go. Right? Actually, actually, does anybody in the room know Italian? Anybody? Nobody? Then I crushed it. It was great. It was fantastic uh, Italian. The translation for that is, um, is abandon hope all ye who enter here, right? So basically Dante's point in that is, is that when we choose that, when we choose isolation, a life without God, we are choosing um, in and to ourselves. We are choosing uh, wrath. So the idea then is that we are encouraged, right? Because we're not choosing that, we're encouraged. And the big idea for the series that we've talked about uh, essentially every week um, is that Jesus is the source of enduring hope. And so we have worked our way um, through 1 Thessalonians, and today we're going to move into chapter uh, 4. So if you've got a copy of the scriptures and you want to turn there, turn to 1 Thessalonians 4, and we will jump into verse 9. Now, there are a few verses at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians 4 um, that deal with marital faithfulness and fidelity inside a marriage. It's a great text. We just talked about that in the fall when we did Asking for a Friend, when we did that series. So if you want to refer back there, um, you, can, you can do that as well. So verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught 
by God. That word right there is kind of interesting. It's the word uh, theodidike, taught by God, right? Literally, he says you were God taught. Theos, right? God. And taught is the word uh, didache. If, you, uh, if you're here and you studied education, one of our teachers or administrators, uh, maybe at school, aren't we grateful for teachers and administrators who are shining Christ's light and love inside the context, right, of our school system? You can clap for that. You can clap for them. Super grateful um, for you. But if you studied education, you learned the didactic method of teaching. That's this word. Paul says to them, you were God taught, right? What were you God taught? Uh, what were you God taught? About He says, to love one another. Neil, right from the top today, he called it a love letter, right? For indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this, uh, to do this even more. Now, last week, uh, chapter 3, if you were here, Pastor Chad taught us how God shows us hope in the context of love um, through other believers inside of biblical community. And we talked about a few weeks ago that we just launched a brand new term of life groups. If you're not currently connected to a group, we've got a catalog. It's got all of our groups in it, the bridge groups that meet on Sunday mornings, life groups that meet um, throughout the week. You can grab a catalog today um, on your way out if you're not currently uh, connected to a group. One of the things that I appreciate so much about um, our body is how uh, our life group leaders do such a great job of exactly what this text says. Brotherly love, Philadelphias, right? We get the city of brotherly love, teaching us how to love each other. And one of our groups recently had somebody who went through kind of a, uh, an extended illness that was going to lead into surgery, that was going to lead into time um, off of work. And so they got together, they collected resources, they provided gift cards, they went and sat uh, collectively, individually, had prayer times, they sang together. And I just love how our life group leaders do such a great job of keeping us on point in this reality of loving each other, because that's what Paul is appealing to. It's interesting to me that Paul says, listen, you're doing a great job with this whole idea of God's love, but he says, do it even more. Because normally what Paul will say is, hey, you're doing a great job with this, but you really need to work on this. But in this particular text to the Thessalonians, he says, hey, you're doing a great job in the context of God's love, in the, in the context of loving one another in God, with God's love and also loving God personally, individually. But you need to do this, you need to do it even more to even a greater degree. Now, why do you think, why do you think he says that? Why is that so, why is that so critical, so important? What Paul's going to do in the next couple of verses is he is going to give us three gauges. Because the reality is that, I mean, imagine the Thessalonians were thinking, well, if we're doing a good job, but we've got to even do a better job. Like, how do we know where we are? How do we know where we are? How we are doing in the context of living our lives from a place of the love of God? How do, how do we know? Well, in the next verse, Paul is going to give them three, we'll call them gauges, three indicators that are going to help us understand how we are doing, living our lives out in the context um, of, of the love of God. And there are these three, they're, they're your, your life's volume, your life's venue, and your life's uh, vocation. Those three things. So look at verse 11. Um, it says, and to aspire, and that's the word that means goal or ambition. And by the way, this is not a suggestion. This is an imperative. And to aspire. In other words, make it your goal to live quietly. Do you ever read things in the Bible and go, what? 
Paul says here, make it your goal, make it your ambition to live quietly. That is so countercultural to what we, the world that we live in today. It's, like, it's almost like this subversive idea that we, we live in a world that is look at me, right? Everybody look at me, everybody praise me, everybody turn your eyes this way and give me, give me your attention. We live in a look at me world, but what Paul says is in a look at me world, what really works, what really wins is for you and I to live, to aspire, to make it our goal to live a quiet life of faithfulness, stacking up faithfulness day after day after day after day. That should be the volume of our lives. Christians, as believers, we are called to live a look at him life in a look at me kind of world. How do you do that? I don't know if you feel that tension sometimes. Like, do you, do you ever read scripture and go, how in the world could somebody live this kind of life in the kind of context, in the kind of in the kind of world, in the kind of reality that I live in. Because we're all kind of fighting that, right? We're all kind of fighting this, um, I, I don't want the attention on me in a world that has all the attention on me, but it seems like to, to move forward in the world, to get ahead in the world, some of the attention has to be on me. And Paul says, listen, just aspire to live quiet, to live a quiet life rooted, right? And what he has just said earlier, which is what rooted in the love of God, that's a necessity for us to live this kind of life, this kind of, of reality. And this is, not just a, this is not just a New Testament reality. It's an Old Testament reality. Right, some of the most familiar verses in the Old Testament come from um, the prophet Isaiah chapters 53 up to chapter 57. And in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 7 through 9, um, some of you are going to know these verses pretty well. Um, Isaiah says, he says this, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he, he, the Lord, may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For his heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than uh, higher than your thoughts. So in, uh, in church world, if you've been around for a while, if you've heard these verses before, we tend to talk about verses eight and nine. It's the idea of thoughts. It's the Old Testament word weavings. And what happens a lot of times um, is a, uh, a teacher or somebody will come up and he'll show the backside of a weaving, which looks like chaos, right? All the yarn or thread or whatever. And then he'll flip it around and he'll, you'll see the what's woven on the front as a message or something that's, um, that's clear and very succinct on the front. And we're like, okay, so on the backside, what we see is the chaos. What God sees is the plan and the whole thing is coming together, which absolutely makes sense. The only question is when he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, right? What thoughts? What's well, the thoughts about how we think about God? He says, let the, let the uh, wicked man forsake his ways and the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts and let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him for he will abundantly pardon. And so the thoughts that you and I ought to be thinking are about a God who calls us back to himself, who calls us back to his love because that is what he does best. That he calls us to himself so that he can have compassion on us. That is God at his finest. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't do other things. Is God a judge? Sure. He's a righteous, perfect judge, which we want, by the way. A lot of us are like, ah, I don't want to talk about the God who judges. We want a righteous judge. Angie and I, um, we helped plant a church in Memphis 20 years ago. And you've seen Memphis has been in the news um, 
all weekend. And it's a reminder to us that we have a God who judges righteously and perfectly, who sees everything and nothing, nothing, nothing escapes his gaze. It's gotta, it's gotta judge, absolutely. Does God, does God punish sin at the right time, in the right way, in the right measure? Absolutely. But I would say to you, I would encourage you, what God does best is that God shows compassion. That when we come to him, our thoughts need to be that we run to him because, because he wants us, that in the person of Christ, he gave his one and only son to die on a cross, right? To pave a way for us to do what? To come to him. So you and I, unrighteous people, you and I, the wicked man forsake his ways. We come back to him and we need to run to him. So what do we have to do? We have to repent of our small thoughts of the love of God. We have to repent of, the, of our small, the default human mind always goes to, I've got to earn it. I've got to, I've, got to, I've got to be good. I've got to be better. It's the default human condition, the frailty with what we're born with in the world. And when you go through um, a season of, um, uh, of unforgiveness or bitterness, or you have moments of anger or selfishness or greed or whatever is going on in your eyes, and it's not, it's not if, it's when those things happen and come in, our automatic thoughts should be repentance and we should run to God. But our default thoughts are, are with the younger of the two prodigal sons. When we mess up, when we slip up, when we sin, when, when, when we do those things, our default thought, I will go to my father and say, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your what? Hired servants. That I have to earn the love of God. I have to earn the favor of God with, with my behavior, right? But what those verses say is that what God does best is he has compassion. Is God a judge? Yes. Does, does God punish? Absolutely. In the right way, the right time, the right measure. We can trust him to do that. But what God does best is not sit like this on the porch. What God does best is he jumps off the porch and he runs down the road and he falls on his son's neck. He falls on his daughter's neck and he kisses and he forgives and he won't even let the son give a speech. That scripture says, for he will abundantly pardon. You and I don't bring our lives in front of God like this heavenly parole board, right? And explain what good behavior we've had recently, hoping that somehow because of our good behavior, God's gonna somehow let us off, let us off the hook, right? No, he's already stamped our lives. He's already stamped our lives approved in the person of Christ going to the cross for us. We already have the love and the favor of God in our lives. It's not something you have to work for. It's not something you have to go out and you have to earn that you have to, you have to work really hard that somehow you have to muster up the attention of heaven. You and I already have been given that. We have it. And the reason that is such a big deal is because when you have the approval of heaven, you don't have to go look at me, everybody, hey, Look, you can live a quiet life of faithfulness, stacking up day after day after, because you have all you ever need, your life rooted down deep in the love of God, the one who says, run to me, even when you mess up, I'm waiting on you, I want you to come to me, run to me. That should be the volume, the volume of our lives. Because, well, what are we just saying? I'm fighting a battle, he, not me, he, has already won. I'm not fighting for victory, I'm fighting from victory, one that has already been won by him. And if you find yourself living for the approval of others, we'll just sing that song backwards, 
If you find yourself consistently living for the approval of others, that's a battle you'll never win. You can gather and garner all the attention in this world that you, that you want and try and get all the attaboys and the attagos, and it will never fill your soul. You and I need to repent of our small thoughts of God's love and live a quiet life of faithfulness. That's gauge number one. Gauge number two comes up halfway through the verse. It says this, and to mind your own affairs. Hello. <laughs> Other Bible translations, the KJV, the NIV, the NLT, you know what they all say? Mind your own business. The DFV, the Dean Folks version says, stay in your lane, right? Just stay in your lane. And at the risk of sounding like the, you know, get off my lawn guy, the get off my lawn pastor, um, this reality is just what God has given, what God has brought to your life, just stay. Now, listen, if, um, if, you, if you're going to help someone, if you're, you're going to love somebody, right? Absolutely. Take that exit, right? Turn on that detour, get out of your lane, go do those things. But if what you're doing is you're spending your time angling for information that you don't need, gossiping about somebody else's um, circumstances, um, finding your way, nosing your way into conversations or repeating conversations that you were never part of in the beginning, stay in your lane. Paul says, mind your own business. 2000, um, 2019, I think, the Journal of Social and um, Psychological Science, they produced a massive study on gossip. You know what they found? The average person in America spends 52 minutes a day gossiping. 52 minutes. I want you to think about that for just a second. That means, that means the people out here in our community are spending 104 minutes a day Gossip, you're like, well, why did you double it? Because nobody in this room struggles with gossip, I'm sure. It's the people out there, right, who are going to struggle with, with something like this. It's a massive amount of time when you think about the energy that we put into being a part of somebody else's business when we got no business in their business because God's given us enough business for us to be involved in on a day-to-day, -day, regular basis. The venue of our lives, the space of our lives, Listen, if we don't remain connected to God's story, we're going to constantly find ourselves being involved in other people's stories. I think that's the reason we, um, the reason we struggle with this sometimes is because there's this, um, there's this part of us that's created, that's part of the design of God to be connected to a bigger story. We talk about it a lot, the narrative of God to redeem the world, to bring it all back to himself, the, the tension, the drama, the resolution. And that's why it's so critical for you and I to have unhurried time every day in God's word. That's why we're reading through 1 Thessalonians together. I hope you're journeying with us through that six days a week on the LifePoint app. You've got an audio version of the Drivecast from one of our leaders. Our Next Steps writing team has done a fantastic, fantastic job of writing out a daily devotional based on, uh, based on the words. As a matter of fact, uh, yesterday's devotional um, on Saturday was based on this passage that we're talking about today. We need daily unhurried time in the world. Why? Because it helps us remain connected to the bigger story of God, which allows us then to do exactly what Paul says here. So how are you doing? Minding your own business. Paul says, and to your own affairs.
That's the second gauge, right? Third gauge comes up um, towards the end of verse 11. And it says this, and to work with your hands as we instructed you. This is your vocation. You and I were created to work. Since the beginning, the Garden of Eden, God put it in us, in you, in me to be designed to work, to be investing in something else, to be building something else, creating something else, investing um, in people. It's part of us, which is why I think we so easily substitute work for a relationship with God. It's just a, it's a twisted, tough uh, part of the fall. But Paul says, listen, work with your own hands. Go to work. He connects this. I think it's connected to something he says over in chapter five, the next, uh, the next chapter over in verse 14, he says this, brothers and sisters, we urge you to warn those who are lazy. You know, I almost entitled uh, the message today, live a quiet life, mind your own business and don't be lazy. Aren't you encouraged and glad you came, right? <laughs> you're glad you're here uh, today while we're talking about these things. Listen, even though from the garden, we know that work was cursed. It's part of the curse. Work is not a curse. It's part of our design. And so part of what happens in you and part of what happens in me is that when we work, we have this sense of dignity, right? About our work, about the offering um, that, that we bring. However, we have the tendency to let the dignity become our definition. And our identity is more wrapped in work than it is rooted in the love of God. And when things like that happen, we have the tendency to become lazy. And the reason that we become lazy is because we are concerned that we may give more in work than we gain from work. We have this, this fear that we may serve more than we think we deserve. Does that make sense? So when that happens in work, our tendency is just to say, well, I'm, I'm out, I'm gonna unplug, I'm gonna, I'm done, I'm not gonna, this is not gonna be my reality. And, and Paul says, listen, you need to encourage one another. Don't be lazy. If you read the broader context of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, what you realize um, when you read both letters is it seems like the Thessalonian Christians, at least some of them, had quit work. They'd given up their jobs, to wait on the return of Christ 100% of the time. So they spiritualized, they hyper-spiritualized laziness. That's what they did. Now, I will say, um, just a commercial, next week we are gonna focus on that reality, on the return of Christ, the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter four. And I try, I, I try not to overhype right stuff, but do not miss next Sunday. Next Sunday, we're gonna talk about the return of Christ and you're gonna to get to hear uh, the story of hope in the context of one of the families um, here at our church and how God has done incredible things um, with them and through them in the midst of, of what most people would feel is hopelessness. They have actually found hope. Do not, whatever you gotta do, be here, um, be here with us uh, next Sunday. That said, you do all those three things, right? Volume, venue, vocation. All those things land at the end of verse 11, and it lands on this, right? Paul has said, we work while we wait, not instead of waiting, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on 
No one. So Paul says, this is what makes work make sense. Work becomes ministry when you are dependent on God's love. Now, you and I are going to be dependent on something, right? We're going to depend on something to, to get us through. We've got to find a resource somehow, some way. Sometimes we find that by medicating ourselves with a, with a substance or comfort eating or shopping or whatever it is, the attaboys, the pats on the back, the approval of others. Somehow we have to find a way to tell ourselves that we are okay. But Paul says what you can do in volume, venue, and vocation, right? Live a, quiet, uh, live a quiet life, mind your own business, and work hard so that, he says, so that you may, what? Walk properly in front of outsiders and show that you're dependent, not on them, but that you are dependent on something, uh, on something that's bigger. And you're going to depend on something. And, you know, maybe you're here today, maybe you're a believer, maybe you're not a believer, but you'd say, you know what, Dean? Um, I depend on me. I bet on me. But there's an end to that, right? Uh, last week, uh, David Crosby passed away. Crosby Stills and Nash, right? Great singer uh, from the 60s, musical genius, whenever it came to harmonies. But the night before he suddenly passed away, somebody uh, hit him up on Twitter about heaven. And um, about who was going to go to heaven and who wasn't going to go to heaven. And Crosby's comment the night before he passed away was, heard it was overrated, dot, 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 cloudy. And I just thought about that, right? He, he wasn't seriously ill, didn't know that that was going to be his, his night. And as great as he was musically, I would just say that I think he's off theologically, Right? This is, not, this is not cloudy. Are there difficult moments in our lives? Sure there are. Are there moments that we fight through, walk through? Yes. But the way you get through those is not by sitting back and guessing about what could be or could not be. The way that we make it through those moments is by rooting our lives in the love of God. I was on a, on a plane uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, and when I was flying out, you know how it is, uh, central Ohio, right? It gets cloudy at the end of December, and they don't clear up until the beginning of March, right? Every day is gray and cloudy. I was on a plane. It was a little bit of a longer flight, so we had to fly a little higher. And um, all of a sudden, I don't know, five, six minutes, we bust through the clouds, and the sun is brilliant. It's, I mean, it's almost too bright, right? It's, the, uh, the window shades were up. It's almost piercing, and you're, you're kind of squinting because you kind of feel like about this time of winter you've forgotten what the sun is like. I was just reminded, you know, the sun's always shining, right? The sun is always shining above the clouds. And your cloud, the clouds in your life, your tough moments, the clouds in my life, my tough moments, they don't stop the sun from shining. You and I need unhurried time in the love of God. On a, we need a cruising altitude in the love of God on a daily basis so that we understand that, listen, heaven's not overrated. Heaven's not cloudy. Heaven is very clear. So what do you mean very clear? It's clear that you and I, what changes us and what transforms us is the love of God. So as we have unhurried times, we have that cruising altitude in God's love, what we realize is that what's happening here day to day, I can't face tomorrow, but tomorrow is in your hands. I love the line. I love the line in that, in that, uh, in that song we sang. 
right? I have manna for today, but when it's gone, I know you're not. You are my hope and stay. Uh, you know, we have, uh, I'll give you a, a contrast maybe to the Crosby idea. So, you know, we have a team that left for Uganda uh, this week, and I had the privilege of driving a group of them to the airport uh, this week. And so um, one of the couples uh, came over to the house. Mom, dad, it was the uh, day of school was canceled. Uh, so they had their two daughters with them. I think they're 12 years old twins. Uh, so they came by the house and uh, he had his trunk open. I was talking to the girls. Our trunk was open. We were transferring luggage and all that stuff. And out of nowhere, he reaches up and he puts his arm around his wife. Now, you got to know this dude. Um, 15 years ago when I met him, wasn't a Christian wasn't a believer. Now he was, a, I mean, he was, you know, weightlifter guy, sharp looking guy, worked hard, had a great career. Like he was a dude, right? But when it came to Jesus, he was like, Meh, you know, that's him 15 years ago. And God has radically, radically changed him. And so I'm throwing luggage in the car and he grabs his wife and he starts to pray he says, God, I want you to protect her. But God, more than that, take her to the ends of the earth to help people know about you. And for all the children, God, that are over there in the care point, I pray that they'll feel your love because our team is going. And God, we look forward to you bringing her back. To us. And in my, I mean, I'm like, all the, I'm transported 15 years ago to the change that God's love has made in him, right? So I'm trying to kind of pray and throw luggage, you know, all at the same time. It's kind of a spiritual moment, kind of not. And then all of a sudden, I open my eyes, and you know what I see? Two little sets of 12-year-old eyes staring out the back of the car. And they're sitting there watching their dad. And they don't even know it. They're not in church but they're getting the ministry of the church. And without even knowing it, what they're doing is sitting there going, you know what? That's the kind of man I want to marry. You know, we talk a lot about, you know, be a real man. And blah, blah, blah. That's a real man. What my dad is doing with my mom right now. That's the kind, that's what I'm looking for right there. Because they're seeing somebody whose life has been rooted in, not perfect, absolutely not, but who's rooted in the love of God to the degree that it has brought transformation. I'll say it to you this way. What water is to a fish, the love of God is to our souls. We need unhurried time daily in it, stacking up day after day after day after day. And all of a sudden you built up this reservoir of the love of God into your soul. All of a sudden you start to see change. That becoming, uh, that, that living a quiet life becomes the most natural thing that you could do where you start to avoid situations where you're getting in other people's business because you know that God's got different business for you to be involved in and work can become a joy. It actually becomes a ministry because you go into work and the paycheck becomes secondary to the kingdom kingdom of God, which is advancing, and you get to be part of that, connected to the bigger story of God. You and I need to repent of our small thoughts of the love of God offered for us in the person of Christ on the cross, sacrificing himself for our sins, miraculously resurrected on the third day, because that is the only thing, the only thing that will give us hope.
Jesus is the source, not a source. He is the source of enduring hope. So in just a second, I'm gonna pray. And then the band is gonna come back up and we're gonna sing the song that you learned, right? Right before I started teaching. So you learned it, right? Now you can sing it, right? You've sang it once and now my hope is that you can worship from the love of God, from a battle, not that you have to fight, from a battle, not that you have to win, but one that has already been won for you. Let's pray together. God, we lay our um, lives in front of you with a sense of gratitude for all that you've done for us. God, really for all the things that we don't have to do. And so God, today, prodigals we are, we come to you, the God of compassion, the God who will abundantly pardon. It's in your name we pray. Amen.